Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, where we let light shine out of darkness. With your host, Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist. In the last episode of the Illuminate Podcast, I interviewed my friend and colleague, Dr. Adam Moore. He is a fellow therapist, podcaster, author, presenter, and all-around great guy that has a lot of great information to share about the recovery process from pornography, sexual addiction, and betrayal trauma. Adam and I covered five different questions slash misconceptions that a lot of people talk to us about in our practices and as we speak and present around the country. And in this episode, we actually have about three more that we didn't get to in our last episode. So in today's episode, we're going to cover three big ones and have a great discussion on those items. And who knows, maybe there'll be other questions that some of you might have. We would love to hear from you. And if there's other topics that you'd like us to address and give you our opinion on, uh, we'd be more than happy to do that. So let's jump right in and finish up the last three questions and misconceptions that people have about the recovery process with Dr. Adam Moore. The next misconception that we have on the list here is this idea that doing a full disclosure or a polygraph lie detector test will somehow just create you know, magical healing. Uh, right. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, both of our offices, you know, one of the sort of mission critical protocols that we do is this full therapeutic disclosure. Right. A lot of times couples have this um, unintentional midnight to 4 a.m. panic attack, you know, trickle disclosure that either, you know, starts there and then lasts for the next six weeks. Um, and of course, those aren't helpful. They're not therapeutic. Um, but then I think people will often get it in their heads like, once we go through a full disclosure process, then we're going to be okay. We just need to get through that. Everything's going to be better after that. And sometimes the disclosure is just the starting point of healing. In fact, in a lot of cases, the disclosure is the starting point right. of healing. Um, and it's the same with polygraphs. And polygraphs are really interesting. I, I never had a client do a polygraph for the first like 10 years of providing therapy. And then all of a sudden, for some unknown reason to me, in the last two or three years, I've had a whole bunch of people coming in and requesting them. And so we actually work with a company here that does them. And so we've been sending people in to do those. And when people ask my opinion about polygraphs, this is what I say. If you feel like you absolutely need to have one to be able to move on, then do it. it you know, it'll be a useful four or $500, but you have to know that the likely scenario is at the end of that polygraph, you will not necessarily feel any better safer, more secure than you did at the beginning. And that's been my experience when people pass and fail. So we've had people pass polygraphs and we've had people fail polygraphs. And the experience of the spouse or partner is generally about the same either way. They'll kind of go, yeah, I, I saw that coming. Or they'll go, you know, I'm surprised, but so-and-so, my spouse is working really hard and this just means we may have more work to do, but let's keep going. So I haven't seen them be game changers for people. Uh, the only thing I think, you know, like I said, is if people feel like I cannot move on without one, okay, fine, then, then do it. But if, if people understand that an event in a therapy, a therapy event um, or any kind of event doesn't 
make for long-term change. If they can understand that, then cool, we're going to move forward. But I do think people need to know that no matter how much stock or energy or weight they're putting on this particular event, it will highly, it will be highly unlikely that the outcome will, you know, be what they're hoping or expecting. Yeah. And I think that word event's really important because it is absolutely an event. It, there's a start and an end to it. And the disclosure is a critical stepping stone toward longer term healing. And it needs to happen for there to be trust rebuilt right. in the relationship. But in and of itself, like you said, as an event, um, it's not going to just solve everything. You close the book and move on with your life. And I know sometimes, in, even in spiritual religious context, sometimes everybody just gets gets kind of worked up around this idea of the confession and let's find out what's going on. And now we know the truth. Okay, now let's forgive and move on. And and that's that just becomes part of the process is, okay, now we know what's going on. Now we know what to work on. There is something I think that's pretty important about building up to the event. Right. Because a disclosure is obviously a, a one-time, say, two-hour event that occurs in a therapy office. But there's months of preparation, emotional preparation, mm -hmm. relational preparation, you know, all of that, getting out of denial, being honest. So the process of going through and preparing for disclosure, I think, is probably more impactful long run than the actual two hour event. Although, like you said, that disclosure event does need to happen. You know, I, I don't, it's pretty rare when I see a couple just really nailing recovery, doing a great job. And they went, eh, I don't think we need to do disclosure. That, that would be a fairly, fairly rare situation. Right. Right. So this is all about managing expectations and helping people realize that this is not a cure. It's part of the healing process that they have to stay in if things are going to get better. And I think I've got to say this because managing expectations, man, when you said that, that just totally shook my brain. That it actually is what everything we're talking about today is about, is managing expectations. I think so much of life is about people experiencing resentment because their expectations didn't get met. Right. They thought things were supposed to be a certain way. And when they didn't turn out that way, it was like absolute meltdown. And so a lot of my therapy with people is about helping them to have more realistic, reasonable, and flexible expectations on in every area of life. People who are flexible in their expectations just tend to fare better in every area of life. Oh, I love that. And so as we're clearing up misconceptions, this is really you know the front runner to, to people going to get help and knowing exactly what they're walking into so that they don't go in there expecting a very rigid outcome and recognize that there's a lot yeah. of moving pieces here in this journey. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Another misconception that we often see is this idea, and this sometimes gets perpetuated by family members, sometimes unfortunately can be by well-meaning church leaders or even by the husband, but that the wife is responsible in some way uh, for her husband's pornography or sexual addiction. Right. Not only for the addiction like it's her fault somehow that it's been that it was created or is being perpetuated, but it's also her responsibility to fix it. Yeah. You know, but both of those things and a lot of, I think women in general have it wired into their DNA somehow to be deeply empathic, deeply concerned and caring for other people. And so when they see somebody in pain, 
you know, the first thing they want to do is go, how can I fix this? And a common thing that I see women asking themselves is, is, is some of this my fault in any way? It's like a control thing. If it's partly my fault, then I can control it. I can change something and fix it. So it's, it's a, it's a form of control and it's so deadly. It's so deadly for the, you know, spiritual well-being, the mental well-being and emotional and relational well-being of women to see themselves as the reason for the addiction. But it's hard to let go of the idea that maybe there's something I can do to fix this because then initially when people don't really understand, say, the idea of surrender, uh, they start thinking, well, if there's nothing I can do to fix it, then I'm just lost and it's just going to run over me. Oh yeah, like I'm just cut loose and and it's totally, you know, I'm I'm now in trouble, right? Well, I think when this I think when these these issues come out, whether somebody's caught or they they come forward with a, with a, a confession, everybody feels powerless. You know, the guy feels powerless of like why am I doing this when I don't want to be doing this? And of course the wife feels powerless that you know, she should have known or how could she, you know, pick somebody and marry somebody who's struggling with this or how did what signs did she miss or church leaders and family members sometimes can can they want to figure out well how do we get this thing to stop and so they're looking they're looking at both people and again i think the wife is a really easy target because um especially when it involves something involving sex because they they can very easily get you know blaming of well if they believe that this sexual addiction or pornography addiction is about sex then right. they're going to put the pressure on her to provide more of what seems to be misdirected in, a, in the wrong area. So it's like, well, make sex better or have more of it. And won't he just want to, you know, st- stop doing the unhealthy behaviors? And that's a complete misunderstanding about this issue. And then again, it becomes very victim blaming for a woman who truly didn't cause this and is not perpetuating it by how much or how little sex she's having with her husband. Exactly. I think one of the roles that we have as therapists, as the expert treatment provider, is to speak the truth about issues like this. I remember one time you said, uh, I was in a training with you, and you said, one of the things I say in almost all of my first sessions to the wife is, you're not crazy. And so many of the women have this incredible relief experience when they hear that because it's the first time anyone's articulated that to them because up until that point they've started, they've wondered if they're crazy and people have either implied or explicitly said to them, you're crazy, you're broken, something's wrong with you. So to have an expert say you are not crazy and this is not your fault is so important. In fact, for anybody who's trying to provide support for care for help, uh, a woman whose husband is struggling with pornography uh, one of the most important things they can say is, I know this is not your fault and I know you're not crazy. That will be more helpful than almost anything a person can say in the beginning. And they'll need to say it to her at least a thousand times. Yeah. Because she's going to forget it. She's going to go back into self-blame and believe. Again, culturally, you know, there, there's so much pressure on women to, to be, uh, you know, sexual and to be, uh, wild in the bedroom and all these things. It's the pressure is everywhere and it doesn't help when people don't understand what pornography addiction and sexual addiction is about, that it's about lots of other things besides sex. And it's, it's not, it's not going to be her responsibility to dispense a certain amount of that to like fix it. 
And speaking of cultural expectations, you know, women in an LDS culture get a dual message. Uh, you are the sexual gatekeeper. Right. And you need to be meeting all of your husband's wildest sexual fantasies at the same time. Right. You know, and not only is it impossible, but it's not even healthy no. to be able to, you know, think of it in that in that context in any way. So from a, a larger perspective, you know, certainly there's need for a cultural change that puts responsibility back on men for their own sexuality and not handing it over to women saying, Hey, you need, I need you to manage this for me. Right. And one thing I I've, I've reminded some women of in the past is that look like it says in doctrine and covenants one twenty one, you know, if, if the rights of the priesthood are mishandled by deception or, or unrighteous dominion, or I'll just include addiction, abuse, anything like that, then amen to that authority. And I'll, and I'll take that and say, look, a, you know, basically your marriage, your marriage is is in trouble. Like there, there's not a marriage as we understand it. The, the covenants are being broken. And so the rules are different right now. And so in a lot of ways, it's okay for now to say amen to sex. It's okay to say, let's take sex off the table. Doesn't mean they right. can't have sex, but certainly we're not going to put pressure on there because the reality is, is that all the things, all the, the rules have changed in the relationship. She doesn't even know who this guy is. A lot of the times there's no disclosure yet. She doesn't know what she's dealing with. If there's been other sexual partners, she's got to get tested for disease. There's all kinds of things to figure out. So to, so to make this about how much sex she's having is completely the wrong discussion because, again, amen to like what you thought you knew about the marriage. We're going to slow down and start over and really rebuild this thing right. from the ground up and figure out if, if there's even a safe place for sex in the future. And I don't want to, you know, go too far off topic, but I think I've been uh, disappointingly surprised at how many women were actually unaware that they could set up sexual boundaries in their marriage. Right. They're like, wait a minute, I, I can say no to sex. I mean, I've had so many women say, I was just under the impression that once you were married, anything goes and you pretty much have to be there for your husband when he desires it. And so when I say no, you can decide if and when and how and under what you know, context, then it's so liberating and freeing. And it makes me sad because somebody was supposed to tell them this before now. I, I shouldn't yeah. be the first one saying this. Right. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody gets to be in charge of their own body. And, you know, President Hunter spoke about this, you know, in, in, in conference back in the nineties and, and others, you know, in terms of, you know, you're, you're basically, you're, you're, the wife is not the husband's property. That's such an old dated belief and right. it's, it's so harmful. And so again, the fear that if I don't have sex with him, I'll make this addiction worse. Uh, not true. Not right. true. Absolutely. This is not yep. true. So let's go over one more. Another misconception is that, uh, you know, he just needs to get over it and just choose to stop, right? Like kind of the willpower model. If, if he just right. wants to get over it, he'll just get over it. And so, you know, what's the problem with that? Yeah. Well, I need that in my life with my Oreo addiction. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, Adam, just stop it. Just stop, man. I think people want it to be easy. You know, we, we want things to be easy. It's kind of like when you hear a motivational speaker will say, you know, just just gear up and get going and, and don't quit and all of your problems will go away. You know, um, there's a lot more complexity behind that. Certainly there's um, value in working hard through the difficult times, but that alone doesn't create success in life. And, and similarly, 
you know, there, yes, there's a certain level of choice, of course, with every decision to act out with pornography, there are choice points, but a lot of times the choice points happen hours, days, weeks, and even months before the actual acting out experience. And so just saying, Hey, I know that your brain has gone into ritual and you're on autopilot and you've pretty much stopped thinking at this point, uh, saying at that point to stop is, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I remember you saying one time, you've got to go upstream. You know, that's the metaphor mm-hmm. that you used. Um, right. you're, you're go- things are going downstream. You've got to go way upstream to engage the decision points because by the time you get to that point, I mean, you and I both work with guys who will be typing pornography, uh, who will be typing pornographic terms into a search engine and saying out loud, I really should not be doing this. This is a bad idea. And typing and clicking while saying it's a bad idea. So knowing something's a bad idea doesn't necessarily mean that you will just be able to make that, you know, choice. Oh, I I should just stop and then just stop. Right. And I, I find that the willpower is important, but it's also important to understand what an addicted brain looks like. And an addicted right. brain, in a lot of ways, is is offline in terms of decision making, future thinking, goals, values, things like that. When when truly, it's in that reactive animal, a primitive brain, and just wants pleasure. I, I often make the the comparison that a lot of a lot of addicted brains look like the lizard in the terrarium under the heat lamp looking for food pellets. It's just about comfort, warmth. You know, they're they're just looking for what feels good. Instead of thinking about the bigger picture. And so willpower, this willpower idea really comes down to this ongoing commitment of do you want to get well? Yes, I want to get well. Okay. So so let's like you said, let's push this thing way upstream and work on the things that will put you into leading situations or expose you to more vulnerability or make you more likely to, to go into bad areas um, while your brain is still working. Because once right. it's compromised it's like telling somebody who is intoxicated, you know, you just choose not to cross the center line. You should have chosen right. not to cross it, you know, and it's like it's at that point it's too late. The choice right. was earlier of how did you handle your stress when you got home from the office instead of going to get some alcohol, you know, those, those right. kinds of things. And I think, you know, from the perspective of a parent or, say, a bishop who is trying to provide support for somebody, you know, when they don't know what to do, when they just – because why would they know? I mean, you know, you got a bishop who's an architect, you got a bishop who's a farmer, you know, a guy that is a baker, and you got parents that this is their oldest child, or I don't know, it's their eighth child, but it doesn't matter because this is the first time dealing with this particular situation. You know, I think what happens for a bishop or a parent who's trying to provide support for somebody, they just go with what they know. And let's yeah. say they haven't really struggled with pornography on their own and in, in their own life. You know, what works for them is just to decide not to do it, and they just don't do it because it's never been a draw for them. And so, apply that to the people. And I know that bishops, you know, who are, say, farmers, architects, bakers, whatever their job is, they're not going to have time to become experts in sexual addiction recovery. They can't cover every issue because they're dealing with a million issues in their office, but they should become at least versed enough in the topic if they're going to be dealing with it a lot they should be you know be have a basic understanding to know that that approach doesn't work and then turn to the resources that are already out there and then turn to the resources that are already out there 
and say, you know what, I don't really know how to deal with this. And this looks bigger than probably my awareness. So let's see what has been created. We'll see what resources are there. Uh, that's better than just winging it and making stuff up. Because unfortunately, when we wing it on things, two things happen. One, we lose credibility, like I talked about earlier. And two, we can actually cause harm and damage, oh, yeah. you know, even as a therapist, like, before I got trained at treating eating disorders, I didn't mess with it because you don't mess around with something like that where it's life and death, someone's, you know, well-being and health. If you don't have some idea what you're doing and, and you've got some training in it, I would always refer out to somebody else. Now that I'm trained, it's something I would feel comfortable doing. But still, at the end of the day, because I really specialize in pornography, um, I'm still going to refer that out to right. somebody else who really that's what they do. Right, and I think telling somebody just work harder at your willpower, what's your problem, can be so discouraging and leave them feeling so hopeless. And that's the last thing we want to create with somebody who's got a very serious challenge in front of them. Absolutely. So, well, thank you, Adam. This has been really enlightening, great conversation. Lots of, uh, there's so many other misconceptions I'm sure we could cover, but I think sure. this is a good start. And uh, I just really appreciate your your wisdom, your insights, uh, and just your support for those who are struggling with these issues. Yeah, happy to be here. It was fun. I encourage you to follow Dr. Adam Moore online on his social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and also download some of the free resources he has available on his multiple websites. I will leave links to all these websites in the show notes below, so please check those out. And I do want to thank him for his uh, contributions, his willingness to come and uh, speak with me on this podcast. And if you have other questions in the future that you want us to address, please let us know and we will make sure we address those in future episodes. Until then, stay tuned for the next episode of the Illuminate Podcast.